Well, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in love at first sight? I do. As a matter of fact, it happened to me once. I'll never forget the moment I first laid eyes on her. I spotted her at a distance. She was sitting across a crowded parking lot. As I approached her, my heart started pounding. My pulse was racing a mile a minute. I walked right up and I touched her. I had to have her. She was the one for me. She was a 1970 Ford Mustang. A real beauty. She was canary yellow with a half black vinyl roof. She had this wood grain dash with white and black checkerboard cloth seats. What a knockout! I spotted her in the parking lot at Hub Ford. You know, the moment I got her home, I started washing, I started waxing. I had that finish so slick, a fly couldn't land on the hood of that car without sliding off. But I had a problem that prohibited me from moving forward in this newfound relationship. My 1970 Mustang had a standard transmission. And I didn't know how to drive a stick. I was stuck on the stick. The enjoyment and the freedom that I had expected to experience was delayed for a little while. It was a week or two in coming until I learned how to shift gears. And you see, this can happen to us spiritually. For years, we've been ingrained with a work-hard attitude, with a performance mentality. Folks are always laying down the law, expecting us to live up. But then we embrace Jesus. And we enter into a new relationship with God. It's a relationship based on grace. It operates by faith. But to enjoy this new relationship, we have to learn to shift gears. And if we don't, we get stuck. Sadly, some believers never move forward in their relationship with God because they're unwilling to shift from law to grace. They fear transitioning from works to faith. They fail to swing their confidence from the flesh to the Spirit. You see, when you become a Christian, you enter into a new covenant that establishes new terms. And you have to adjust your thinking accordingly. You know, relationship with Jesus is the most fulfilling relationship you'll ever know. Give your life to Jesus and you become a brand new purpose. You get squeaky clean. God even puts power under the hood of your life. But the enjoyment of that relationship is sometimes delayed until you learn to shift gears. You see, you don't go very far with God or do much for God until you learn how to shift into the grace gear. That's what unleashes his power. And this is why Paul writes to the Galatians. You see, he had led them to Jesus. He saw their initial joy and their zeal. Surely they were saved, but now they were stuck. God declared their freedom, but their failure to believe prolonged their bondage. The Galatians were free, yet that realization had yet to sink in. In essence, they kept reporting back to prison. 
The Galatians treated salvation as if it were just a furlough instead of a full and permanent pardon. They needed a big shot of John chapter 8. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. You know, history tells us that the Galatians were the ancient hillbillies. They were the uneducated, backwoods people. They were simple and gullible and easily misled. And this is why Paul needed to teach them to shift into grace. And that's what happens here in Galatians chapter 3. Paul gives the Galatians and us a lesson on shifting gears. Well, let's read our text, Galatians 3, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Now notice how these three verses break down. In verse 1, Paul tells the Galatians that their problem is more a result of stupidity than it is naivety. He shakes them up with a candid rebuke. In verse 2, he takes them back to the very beginnings of their salvation. He asks them why they think God has changed the way He treats people. And then finally, in verse 3, Paul boils down his conclusion into a question. He makes them think about how they need to relate to God going forward. Paul shakes them up, and he takes them back, and he makes them think. You see, if your Christian life is stalled out, if you're stuck and having problems shifting gears, you need to listen to Paul's important instructions to the Galatians. Well, first, notice Paul shakes them up. He states in verse 1, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Brought a list with me this morning. You know, I kind of like these top ten lists. Have you noticed that? Well, this morning I brought a list. It's entitled, The Top Ten Politically Correct Ways to Say Someone is Stupid. <laughs> you can't just come out and tell somebody they're stupid these days. I mean, they'll be offended, and you can't offend anybody, not these days. You have to be more subtle, certainly, a little more PC. So here are the top ten polite ways to say that someone's stupid. Number ten, he's a few fries short of a Happy Meal. <laughs> Number nine, the wheel is spinning, but the hamster's dead. <laughs> Number eight, she couldn't pour water out of a boot if instructions were on the hill. Number seven, his elevator doesn't go to the top floor. Number six, the light is on, but nobody's home. Number five, he's got too much yardage between the goalposts. Number four, her cheese slid off her cracker. Number three, an intellect rivaled only by garden tools. Number two, he's as smart as fish bait. And number one, his voicemail isn't taking any more messages. <laughs> well, obviously, Paul is making no attempt here at being politically correct. He doesn't beat around the bush. 
He just says it straight out. Oh, foolish Galatians. Listen to how a few other translations render the phrase. The New English Bible puts it. You stupid Galatians. The amplified version, it says, Oh, you poor and silly and thoughtless and unreflecting and senseless Galatians. The amplified version always lives up to its name. And here's my favorite rendering. It comes from the Phillips Phillips translation. He writes, You dear idiots. (laughs) You dear idiots. Hey, Paul isn't trying to flatter them here. He wants to shock them. He wants to wake them up. It reminds me of a con artist named George C. Parker. Not long after the Brooklyn Bridge opened in 1883, Parker decided to try and sell the bridge to an unsuspecting tourist. Well, the sale was so easy, he tried it again. Well, before long, Parker had abandoned all his other cons, and he was selling the Brooklyn Bridge full time. Over the years, George Parker sold the Brooklyn Bridge for as little as $50 and for as much as $50,000. In fact, he once sold the Brooklyn Bridge to an unexpected, unsuspecting buyer who purchased the bridge on installments. Parker put the guy on a payment plan. Over the years, the police were called in numerous times to stop supposed owners from erecting toll booths on the bridge. This was supposed to make them rich. For George Parker, Brooklyn Bridge sales remained brisk for 45 years. Actually, Parker did so well selling the Brooklyn Bridge, he branched out. Started marketing Madison Square Garden and Grant's Tomb and even the Statue of Liberty. In 1928, the police finally shut him down and threw him in prison. So the next time you hear a fanciful proposal followed by that familiar line, and if you believe that, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you, well then realize you wouldn't be the first gullible person to take the bait. The old adage is true, there's a sucker born every minute. And the Galatians had proven to be spiritual suckers. Religious con artists were trying to sell them a commodity that wasn't even for sale. With their good works and their rituals and their holy intentions, they were attempting to purchase the spiritual equivalent of the Brooklyn Bridge. They were trying to buy the bridge. Not the one that spans the East River in New York City, but the bridge between man and God, our salvation. You see, the Galatians forgot what the Scripture says about our good works. It's really graphic. I'm warning you. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says that our righteous deeds are nothing but filthy rags. The Hebrew phrase literally means used menstrual cloths. I'm not trying to gross you out. But this is what God thinks of our attempts to earn His acceptance. Our goodness isn't good enough for a holy God. In essence, these Galatians, they were taking the mechanic's greasy rags and the janitor's soiled brush and the garbage collector's filthy gloves and they were trying to swap them for the blessings and bounty of Almighty God. Is anybody home? Now you know why Paul calls them, you dear idiots. Yet what about us? Do we try to buy the bridge? By praying prayers like, 
Well, God, if you forgive me this once, I'll never miss another Sunday. Or, God, I'll teach Sunday school if you'll just help me make this big sale this week. Or, God, you see me volunteering to serve you in all these ways. Now, Lord, I need you to do your part and provide me that raise or that promotion or that new house. Are we playing tit for tat with God? Oh, Lord, I'll scratch your back as long as you scratch my back. Are we trying to buy a bridge that's not for sale? When you believe that Jesus died and rose in your place, you instantly become as right with God as you can get. You receive His righteousness. This is why we obtain and maintain God's favor by grace alone through faith alone. In Christ, we're entitled to God's blessings, not because of what we do or don't do, but because we're in Christ. It's location, location, location. Jesus paid the price in full. You can't improve on it or add to it or enhance your status any more than you can earn it. It's by grace through faith. You see, the bridge of blessing is not for us to buy. In Christ, it's already ours. Well, see, Paul doubts that these Galatians, they've been so stupid on their own. They had to have had some help. He figures that they were tricked. And so he asks them, who has bewitched you? And let me challenge you with the same question. Who has bewitched you? Let me challenge you to look back in the rearview mirror of your life. Who started applying all the pressure? Where, where did the condemnation you feel today originate? Who started you down that guilt trip that you've been on now for years? Who started pointing out how little you measure up? Who was the person that was hassling or browbeating or sowing seeds of confusion? Where in the world did you hear that you had to keep this rule or perform that service or make this offering for God to be pleased with you? Was it a misguided Sunday school teacher? Perhaps a pushy preacher? Maybe it was a relative who's stuck in tradition. Maybe it was someone... Maybe you've been listening to a legalistic friend. Or could it just be your own overworked conscience? Well, Paul is saying, identify the source. Who has bewitched you? Or maybe you've just picked up the wrong idea from the world in which we live. It's easy to do. Remember we talked last week, nothing is as foreign to man's thinking as this concept of grace. No one else treats us with the grace that God demonstrates. You may have figured that God would just treat you like everyone else does. When you look back in the rearview mirror of your life, do you see everyone sending you the same message? I mean, your teacher said, make the grades. Your, your coaches yelled, you got to have some guts. you got to keep on. Your parents said, make us proud. Now your boss reminds you, do you want to get paid? I mean, everywhere you turn, you're expected to perform. Even your shoes say, just do it. That is, until we come to God. And He says, you can't do it. As far as God is concerned, you don't even have to try. He just wants you to relax. And rest in the love that you don't deserve. God wants us to stop toiling and start trusting. In Christ, the work is finished. All that is left is for us to walk by faith. 
God has clothed us in his purity. He has surrounded us in his peace. He has empowered us with his love. But now we have to shift gears. We have to drop it into faith. We have to learn to trust. Well, you see, Paul shakes them up. He pinpoints their problem. The Galatians had been victimized by false teaching. But now he explains the solution. He takes them back to the early moments of their salvation. Verse 2. He says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You see, he seeks to remind the Galatians and us of the terms under which God granted us acceptance in the first place. Was it the works of the law or was it the hearing of faith? Under the covenant God gave Moses, the Jews had tried to earn God's favor. For 2,000 years, they had worked at it. They had worked hard at it, keeping the commandments and offering the sacrifices and paying the tithes and observing the rituals and hosting the feasts, demonstrating their worthiness. That's what the law was all about. But try as they might, they kept falling short of God's standards. Understand, the law required perfection. If you wanted to live under the law, you were expected to keep the whole law. James 2 verse 10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. I mean, the law was an all or nothing proposition. And even if you were able to obey the law with 99.9% accuracy, that 99.9% was still not enough. You had to be perfect. By the way, 99.9% sounds pretty good to us, doesn't it? But it falls terribly short. Think about it this way. If the United States Postal Service handled letters with just 99.9% accuracy, that means they would still mishandle 659,340 pieces of mail every day. Just 99.9% perfection would mean 20,000 drug prescriptions were filled incorrectly last year. That would mean 880,000 credit cards are printed with wrong information. That would mean that 315 words in the Webster's Dictionary are misspelled. 99.9% accuracy would mean that American hospitals still give 12 babies to the wrong parents each day. Just 99.9% accuracy means that your heart would miss 100 beats a day. That's why 99.9% perfection is not perfection at all. 99.9% won't cut it. And this doesn't bode well for folks living under the law. Because if 99.9% obedience sends a person to hell, where do you think 88% is going to get you? Or 63% or that... Good old half-time, 50% obedience is going to take you. Or what about that 20% every now and again obedience? Oh, my. Paul takes the Galatians back to the very outset of their faith. And he asks them, he says, what did the law of Moses ever do for you guys? Their salvation, in fact, their whole relationship with God, it had nothing to do with keeping the law. The Galatians were Gentiles. They were saved and baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit before they had ever heard that there was a Jewish law. 
It wasn't until false teachers arrived that they became acquainted with the law of Moses. Paul had preached to them the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. The Galatians had become Christians through simple faith. And this was also how they had received the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul asked specifically, how did you receive the Spirit? By the law or by faith? And you know, this is where the testimonies that we often hear from other Christians can really give us the wrong impression. I can remember folks standing up in my childhood church and making statements like, well, when I finally laid that pack of cigarettes down on the altar, that's when God broke through in my life. Or when I finally accepted God's call to the mission field, that's when He filled me with the Holy Spirit. As if making some dire sacrifice or committing to some great task is what brings on God's blessing. That's simply not true. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, the disciples weren't engaged in sacrifices or taking oaths or pledging to embark on gigantic endeavors. All that happened later as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. But before the power fell, man, the disciples, they were just waiting. They were just sitting there and asking and trusting God to bless them. And God responds to faith. Notice God doesn't change the terms of our relationship in midstream. God doesn't say, well, it takes faith to get started, but after you're a Christian for a while, I'm going to hand you a long list of chores that I expect you to stay up with now. You see, that's marriage, not Christianity. God doesn't reward us based on our completion of his honeydew list. God never says, have faith and you'll be forgiven, but if you want to be blessed, it's going to take more than faith. No, no. Write it down. All God's blessings are received by grace through faith. And this is how God is going to treat us for all eternity. The terms never change. In 1959, Ted Williams had an off-season. Ted was 40 years old. He had a pinched nerve in the back of his neck. As a result, a lifetime 344 hitter batted just 254. Well, the Red Sox, they wanted Ted back in 1960, and so they offered him the same salary, but he refused. He insisted on a pay cut. Ted Williams told the Red Sox, I don't want what I didn't earn. And everybody here in this room, it's our tendency to want to applaud the slugger's mentality. But when it comes to our spiritual status, this is the attitude we need to avoid. Don't you think that it's because you bat 300 that you deserve God's blessing? But if you go into a slump, if your obedience average falls off a bit, you'll have to take a salary cut. You'll no longer be deserving of God's blessing. Wait a minute. I don't care if you were batting 400, you wouldn't be deserving of God's blessing. A lot of Christians live under the pressure to perform and to measure up. They, they never understand that none of us are deserving of God's favor in the first place. I love how Mark Twain put it. Heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Isn't that the truth? Remember, heaven is a party. 
And nobody deserves to be there. We're all heaven crashers. You know, over the years, I've talked to so many Christians who live under a heavy guilt. They, they feel like second-class Christians. They never seem to enjoy their relationship with God. And they, they're haunted. Oh, I, I just don't deserve to be a Christian. And I couldn't agree more. But nobody does. Don't you understand? That's what grace is all about. Grace is having faith enough to walk in a love you really don't deserve. You see, you receive the Spirit by faith. Now you walk in the Spirit by faith. Paul is saying in verse 2, since you started by faith, now continue in faith. You see, Paul shakes them up. He takes them back. And then finally, in verse 3, he, he makes them think. He asks the Galatians another question. He says, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? In other words, in the Christian life, the way you begun is the way you run. It's the way you have fun. You never stop relating to God by grace. Recently, I ran across some questions I bet you never thought to ask. If nothing sticks on Teflon, how do they stick Teflon to the pans? Here's another one. Why do they put Braille on the number pads of drive through ATMs? It's a good question. What was the best thing before sliced bread? But here's another question you may have never thought to ask. Why, after becoming a Christian by a spark of God's Spirit, after being washed and cleansed and born anew by the same Spirit, after growing and becoming fruitful through the activity of the Spirit, after being sealed and secured by the presence of the Holy Spirit, after being filled and gifted by the power of the Holy Spirit, after all this activity with the Holy Spirit, please explain to me why anyone would want to abandon faith in the Spirit and once again put their trust in the flesh. Why? And understand what Paul means by the word flesh. Isn't it interesting how this word flesh just sounds evil? Flesh! The flesh! You when you hear that word, you immediately figure that the flesh gets handled by the vice squad. Flesh means skin flicks and peep shows. Flashers and slashers are into the flesh. But hey, the flesh can also get dressed up and come to church. It can look religious. The flesh can masquerade as righteousness and holiness. It can even stand in a pulpit and preach the gospel. Simply put, the word flesh is me without the Holy Spirit. It's what you and I are apart from Jesus Christ. That's the flesh. And understand, we can be in the flesh while attempting to serve the Lord. The truth of the matter is, is that a lot of good deeds get done in the flesh. To serve the Lord without the Lord. To serve Him in our own strength driven by our own selfish motivations. These are all ways of walking in the flesh. Unrighteousness and 
self-righteousness are examples of the flesh. The prophet Zechariah, he was called by God to restore hope to a discouraged people, and especially their disheartened leader, Zerubbabel. Israel had returned from Babylon to the land of Judah, but the work of rebuilding the temple had been ignored. And for two decades, Zerubbabel had tried to rebuild Solomon's temple, but to no avail. The work had persistently faltered and fizzled. But in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, God assures Zerubbabel that the impossible is going to come to pass. He says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. God predicts that, yes, this temple will be rebuilt. And God even says that when the temple gets its finishing touches applied, everyone will sing grace grace to it. In the end, the only reason given, the only glory shown, has nothing to do with man's prowess. All the praise for the building of this temple will go to the glory of God's grace. God will do the work, not by might, nor by power, but by His Spirit. Grace will prevail, and that's how God plans to build His temple today. Don't you think for a second that you can live a fruitful life for God through law and through works and through flesh, relying on rules, striving to meet up to external standards, trying to grow in your own strength, oh, pushing it all from the the outside in. It will never produce a life that glorifies God. You see, law doesn't produce permanent change in the lives of God's people. Oh, it might curtail sinful behaviors for a time, but you see, the law can't transform our hearts. Only grace, only the Holy Spirit can transform our hearts. Only through His Spirit will your life be turned into a temple. God wants you to house His praise and bring Him glory. But when the work in us is complete and the capstone gets laid, all of the shout-outs will go to grace. And when I look in my rearview mirror, There was a time in my life when I saw Christianity as a treadmill. In contrast today, I see it as a hammock. If you were just looking at a gal on a treadmill or a guy in a hammock, you might think that there was little difference. I mean, both folks are moving and they're active and they're swaying and they're swinging. But just climb on board and you'll quickly notice the difference, won't you? Man, that treadmill is toil and tension. The pace is external. Your movements are forced. You have to keep it up. Slack off just a second and you'll crash. You see, on the treadmill, you're pushed and pushed to do more, but it's never enough. A hammock, though, it's about resting and relying and trusting. You're supported by the hammock strength. It bears the burden. It's what holds you up. The peace, the pace in a hammock is easy and natural. A hammock is no sweat. You just relax and stay put. And your Christian life today is either a treadmill or it's a hammock. Are you running on the treadmill of guilt and performance? 
Are you exercising constantly trying to build up your own self-righteousness? Trying to be good enough for God? Or are you just trusting in the righteousness of Jesus to hold you up? Are you just resting and abiding in Him? This is why I say, you've got to shift gears. You've got to get off the treadmill and into the hammock. On the treadmill, you'll burn out. But in the hammock, you will renew your strength. You've got to shift gears. You've got to go from grunt to grace. This is why Paul tells us in Galatians 5 verse 25. He says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. It's God's grace that gives us life. That's how we become a Christian in the first place. Through the Spirit, we're born again. It's by trusting in God's Spirit, not by relying on our own efforts. And if life comes to us through the Spirit, why not growth and fruitfulness and service? We're not saved by the Spirit, then forced to serve and grow through the flesh. Again, it's a hammock life. That's the Christian life. Jesus said, the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. And neither can you unless you abide in me. A branch doesn't labor or struggle to be part of the vine. Once it's grafted in, it relies on the connection. It just stays put and takes in. And this is Christianity. It's not up to us to do. It's who we hang on to. Are we hanging on to Jesus? Let me close with a story. When Zach was seven years old, he and I stopped by my parents' house one day to grab a snack. No one was home, but I had the key. And so I walked in and immediately began to help myself with what was in the fridge. But Zach was noticeably uneasy. He said, Dad, I feel like we're breaking in. Well, I might have felt at home invading my parents' icebox, but Zach sure did it. And I had to spend several minutes with him explaining to him why coming into my parents' house and going into their refrigerator is the same as him coming into our house and going into our refrigerator. I assured him that we had granddaddy's permission to fix a snack. Well, when it finally sunk in, when Zach finally understood, I'll never forget it, he breathes this big sigh of relief and then he says, Okay, let's party! <laughs> Seven years old. But that illustrates what I'm saying today. Zach felt guilty when he had nothing for which to feel guilty about. The condemnation he felt was self-imposed. He wasn't sure that he was entitled to the Father's blessing. But once he knew the truth, he didn't waste any time believing and enjoying it. Some of you have been forgiven. God is forgiving you, but you can't forgive yourself. Some of you realize you've been set free from the law, but you still labor under your own law, the own ex, your own expectations, the own demands you've set for yourself. Some of us need to take God at His word. That He loves us by grace through faith. Hey, we believe in grace doctrinally. We try to show grace to others, in fact. But some of us still aren't applying God's grace to our own lives. We're not enjoying our relationship with God. We're laboring under a burden rather than swinging in the hammock. This is why I say it's time to shift gears. You need to believe that the snack belongs to you. Even you. You don't have to buy it. 
or earn it or feel guilty for taking it. God's blessing is free and it's for our enjoyment. As a matter of fact, we give Him greatest praise when we take all of His blessings and enjoy them to the fullest. Let's learn to shift our believing into the grace gear. Father, we thank you for your word today and for your love for us. We thank you for your people here. You have set them free. Lord, I pray that they would enjoy that freedom. That they would learn to live in the freedom that the Son has made us free. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to continue in the liberty we have in Christ and not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Work in our hearts, Lord. Help us to live by grace through faith. Help us to enjoy the matchless grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love Him. We thank You for Him. We ask that the Holy Spirit continue to do Your work in us, Lord. Through grace, we trust You, Lord. Help us to trust You more. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.